Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Albert Barr was one of the most captivating speakers to ever stand behind the sacred desk. In 1994, he served as youth evangelist for Seabreeze Camp Meeting at Hope Sound, Florida. In this sermon, he asks the question, Are you alive? I know you're going to enjoy this excellent message. coming week, as we work our way through the week, we, I, have a, I have an agenda. I have somewhere that we're going, something we're trying to accomplish and things I want to deal with and build upon. And much of it's going to be simply how to live, how to really find fullness in life. Obviously, if we're going to do that, the very first question, I guess, that comes is you, you need to know that you are alive in the first place. It's going to be a little bit of a waste of time to talk to you about uh, the Christian life and fullness of life if you aren't even alive. That being the case, I'm going to ask you to stand with me and turn to the last book in your Bibles, the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Now, you who are familiar with your Bibles know that Revelation, chapter 3, is one of two chapters that contain letters to the churches of Asia. You'll remember that this old fella, the Apostle John, probably about a hundred years old, has been exiled to an island called Patmos for his faith in Christ. And there the risen Lord appears to him and dictates these letters to the seven churches. And various books have been written and theology has been built around what the letters mean. And some believe that they represent ages in the history of the church. And that's not what we're going to look at today, but I simply want to use this scripture as a starting point, knowing that uh, we're going to be building for throughout the week. So, verse 1 of chapter 3, Revelation, and unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. 
He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say this morning. And I pray that you would help us by your Spirit to examine ourselves and see indeed whether we merely have a name or whether we're alive in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our very first chorus today was, I'm a new creation. I've been born again. Now, young people, this is something that I feel very strongly about and that I'm convinced is very much needed. You see, all across the land, there are people who call themselves Christians. They call themselves Christians, though, on the basis that they belong to a church or in some cases simply because they live in America. They call themselves Christians because mom and daddy were Christians. They call themselves Christians because they've been baptized. Some may call themselves Christians because they attend church or because they even teach a Sunday school class or even because they preach the gospel. But young people, you are not a Christian, and this is important. I'm not simply wanting to mouth words. You are not a Christian simply because your mom and daddy are Christians. You're not a Christian because you belong to a church. You're not a Christian because you've been baptized or catechized or homogenized. You are a Christian because you have been born again. You have become a new creation. Being a Christian, being saved, is more than just a bookkeeping job in heaven. God does something very real and very miraculous, very fundamental down in our hearts when we become Christians. And the Bible says that it is possible for a person to simply have the name that they're alive and yet be dead. You see, when you say that you are a Christian, you are, whether you fully understand that or not, you are saying by that very testimony that you are alive in Jesus Christ. That you are alive in some fashion that your non-Christian friends are not. That you have passed from death unto life, that you are a new creation, new new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away, all things have become new. Christ now lives in you. You have the life of Christ in you. And those who do not, the Bible teaches, are dead in trespasses and sins. Now that's a big testimony when you say that. You're claiming a lot. And yet, the tragedy is, that again, the Bible teaches that it is possible to say all of that and God, who looks down into the human heart, see that, no, I'm sorry, in spite of the name, in spite of the membership on a church somewhere, in spite of the baptism certificate, in spite of the Christian school, you are not alive. And that's rather, that ought to be a rather awesome thought. And so, what I want to do today is simply share with you some things that we can examine ourselves and see if indeed we are alive or not. You see, my major in college was in the life sciences. If God had not called me to be a preacher, I would probably have been a scientist. I love science, and I love, really love living things. And as I was studying in college, we would be studying down under the microscopes. I love microscopes. Uh, when I was married, I had five microscopes. In fact, I had, I had converted one of them into a microscope uh, projector. And I would go down to the local little Swan Lake, as it was called, a park near the house, and I would get samples of pond water, and I would put it in petri dishes, set it under the microscope, project it on the ceiling, and I'd go to sleep at night watching the uh, 
amoebas and paramecium and euglenas and bold boxes boxing it out there on the ceiling. I mean, there's people that pay big money to go to Africa on safari to see uh, uh, wildlife and its natural habitat and as they pursue uh, each other and such like. I mean, I was seeing all of that right there on the ceiling in that little drop of pond water. I love living things. I really do. And yet, we would study things down under the microscope that at times it was difficult to know whether what we were seeing was really alive or not. I mean, normally you've got some clues, you know, something that's alive, it's got eyes or feet or feathers or fins, or if it's a plant, it's got leaves. But you can look at things down among the protista or even down in the viruses, if you've got access to an electron microscope, that it is difficult to know whether what you're seeing is alive or whether it's some kind of a crystal or something. And so my professor said, well, anything that's alive has to carry on certain life processes. And said, if what you're looking at under the microscope is not carrying on these life processes, there are only three possibilities. Either it has never been alive, that is, it's inorganic, or it is dead, or it is dying. Now, I want you to understand that what I'm saying today, I do not consider to simply be type or allegory of symbolism. I believe with all of my heart that the same God who created the living things is populate this earth and has given them certain processes that indicate, that keep them alive and indicate that they are alive, that that same God has similar processes, parallel processes in the realm of the spirit to be alive in Christ. So, having said that, I want you to check yourselves as we go through, as I often do in my own life, and let's see whether we're alive or not. And let's be honest and sincere about it. You see, the very first thing my professor said was that anything that was alive had to be born. Remember again our first chorus, I'm a new creation. Jesus said that when he talked to Nicodemus there in John chapter 3. Ye must be born again. Do you understand that, young people? You know, we say that so much. I, sometimes people say, well, you don't need that. That's, a, that's redundant. You don't, or that's too basic. You don't have to deal with that. In a, uh, not at Hope Sound, not during camp meeting, not with young people, many of whom attend our school and such like. Yes, I'm sorry. We do have to talk about that. You must be born again. Do you know that you have been born again beyond any shadow of a doubt? You see, if you don't know that you've been born again, then the rest of this message is a waste of your time. Do you know that you have been born again? Ye must be born again. Now, I'm not saying that you have to know the calendar date. I highly recommend that you do. But I didn't understand the value of it, and I do not know the calendar date that I was saved, but I know that I've been born again. I'm not saying that you have to be able to take me to the place where it happened. It's awfully nice if you can. I highly recommend that you make a note of it. But I confess, I, I suspect I could find the church where I became a Christian. It was a large city church, and I would, I would think it would still be there. But uh, I'm not really talking about whether you can take me to the place or even show me the date on the calendar, but do you know that you've been born again? If you haven't been born again, if you cannot point back to a time when a miraculous thing happened down in your heart, you know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you've been born again, then you ought to be alarmed. You must be born again. You do not want to meet God and not have been born again. 
do you know that you've been born again? Now, not only that, but you need to be sure that you've had a good birth. You know, young people, I would love to have the chance, and I hope to accomplish some of these things in a, in a rudimentary sort of a way even this week, but I would love to be able to help you in a fashion that would prevent you from having some of the problems that I find myself counseling middle-aged people with all the time. Problems that stem from things that took place and misunderstandings and that took place in their lives when they were your age. And it plagued them all of their lives, have bothered them and hindered them and hurt them all of their lives. And I know people who simply did not have a good salvation experience. I honestly don't know how to classify some people. You know, Jesus said in John 10.10, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. In other words, he wants you not only to be alive, but to be healthy, to be well alive. I used to raise quail. I guess at one time I had two or 3,000 quail, maybe 5,000 at its peak. And uh, these little quail, you know, you'd take these little tiny eggs about the size of a ping-pong ball and you'd put about 600 of them in a big incubator and the incubator rotates the eggs and keeps them moist and keeps the temperature right. And, and then on the right day, you'll look in the little window on the front of the incubator and there will be all these little baby quail running around. Now, you know, there are basically two kinds of birds. There are birds like our songbird that when they hatch out, they're naked and blind and mama has to feed them and it takes them a few days or weeks to get their eyes open and their feathers on. And then there are birds like the chick or the, the quail that just kind of roll out of the egg all covered with down, get up, shake themselves off and go to scratching. Well, you'd look in here and here'd be all these beautiful little yellow and brown quail. And then I'd take all these quail out and I'd put them into the starter pens where they would go through a series of pins as they matured. But invariably when you did that, you would find a few eggs that hadn't hatched. Maybe you'd pick one up and there'd be just a little tiny chip out of it and you'd hold it up to your ear and there'd be a weak little peak in there and maybe you'd see the membrane inside the egg moving just a little through the chip and you'd realize there was a little struggling chick in there and you'd, you'd want to help it. I don't know. I'm a slow learner. I don't know how many times I tried by helping that chick to hatch, and I'd open the egg for it. And I believe without a single exception, every time that I did, out tumbled a little crippled chick, never could walk, never could get its legs under it. I hadn't really helped it. It was part of the struggle of being hatched that made it to be well. Everything that is alive has to be born. I said born. It might be hatched. It might be budded. It might be sprouted. But it has to begin life as an individual organism. And it needs a good birth. Have you ever gone out and found a maybe a cocoon somewhere? You know? And you break off the branch that the cocoon's on and you put it in the window of the schoolroom or your house. And then in the spring you wait for the butterfly to come out. And sure enough, what had been an ugly old caterpillar... One day there comes a time when the end pops off of that cocoon and you begin to see not a caterpillar now, but an insect, a butterfly, begins to work it, creeping out, working its way out of that cocoon. And you see it struggle and struggle and it looks so frail and there'll be a temptation to kind of help it, to take some tweezers maybe and pull back the constriction and widen the hole so that it can get out more easily. And if you do, invariably you will, you will curse that butterfly. Because it will not be a butterfly that can fly. 
There's something about the struggle of coming out through that constriction that is what God uses to force the life fluids out into the wings of the butterfly and cause them to blossom. And what you'll wind up is a crippled little blighted creature that will drag itself around for a few days and die. What I'm saying that for is when you come to Jesus, do it right. Repent of your sins. Tell God you're sorry and mean it. Repent means that you not only are sorry, but you quit it. I can tell whether you've repented or not. You quit your sin when you've repented. I mean really be serious with God. How many people do I meet today and in their... They're in their 40s and their 50s and they're having all kinds of spiritual problems. And when you begin to talk with them, what happened was they played games with God when they were your age. Got this idea that it was easier to get forgiveness than it was to get permission. And so they go out and they do their own thing. And then when they've had their own way, then they come and they tell God they're sorry until the next time they want to do something. And then they play the game again and again until today they've made shipwreck of their faith. They can't, they can't believe God will save them. Not because God won't save them, but because they cannot believe they're in big trouble. Have a good birth. Do you know that you've been born again? But then my professor said that anything that was alive had to feed. It had to eat. That makes sense, doesn't it? Anything that's alive has to take in energy somehow, whether it's an animal that grazes on grass or whether it's an animal that pursues another animal or whether it's a plant that opens its leaves to the sun and begins to carry on photosynthesis. Everything that's alive has to take in energy. It has to feed. And people, if you are alive in Jesus, there has to be a feeding that goes on. That's why the stress is put on you by your pastor and by your teachers and your parents about your devotional life. You must feed. And I'll just tell you, we all know as parents and, and brothers and sisters that if we have a child or a sibling that doesn't have an appetite, we're worried about it. We know something's wrong. A healthy appetite is a sign of good health otherwise. Do you have a hunger for the things of God? I'm not talking about some old folks thing. I'm talking about a real desire for the things of the Lord. Do you desire to read God's Word? Now, don't misunderstand me. There are times when I go through the motions. There are times when I have to make myself read God's Word. There are times when I have to make myself pray, and that's part of feeding. I'm not talking about that we never have dry times or hard times. I don't believe God has to stage a parade every day for us to know that we're Christians. But I am saying that there should be a basic desire, a hunger, an appetite for the things of God. Do you enjoy going to the house of God? I guess, young people, I just grew up in a different age. I grew up with an understanding that Christians went to church. I just, I mean, that was just the way I was raised. Christians went to church. And I know we live in a busy age, and I know people work, and I know there are reasons why some people can't be in the house of the Lord all the time. But there, it alarms me that we're raising a generation that calls itself Christian and has no appetite to be in the house of God. It really does. I remember at one time... I used to preach, and my wife corrected me, I used to preach that in, in our little church in, in uh, when we lived in a place called Antraville, South Carolina, just a little country place, that I had not missed any service in church for 10 years. She told me it was 12 years. I mean, and I'm not bragging. I realize I could have been sick or anything during that time. God protected me. But during that time, I never missed any church service, a revival, a prayer meeting, anything. Why? I simply understood Christians went to church. 
fact, I remember one time we got up, got the children ready, went out, got in the car. Now, our, we didn't have a telephone. It was a different day. We lived out in the country. Our nearest neighbor, if you could even call him a neighbor, was a rooftop several ridges away. Went out, got in the car to go to church one morning, and the car wouldn't start. What are we going to do, my wife said. I said, we're going to sit here on the porch and wait for the preacher to come and get it. And so we did, and pretty soon, sure enough, he come roaring up in the yard. Get in, get in. We jumped in the car and barely made it back in time for church. He said, as soon as it came nearly time for church and you weren't there, we knew something was wrong. Hey, if you don't show up for church this Sunday, will your pastor come roaring out there knowing you'll be sitting on the porch waiting to go? Or will he just figure, well, if he even thinks about it, that it's just another Sunday to you? I'm saying, really, young people, there needs to be desire for the things of God. And if you have no appetite for the Word, no appetite for prayer, no appetite for the fellowship of the saints, no appetite for spiritual singing, no appetite to think upon things divine, then I'm warning you that you ought to be alarmed. I, I attended Clemson University. Clemson is, was actually an agricultural school initially, and so anything in our state that has to do with agriculture has its center at Clemson. And I was walking over that beautiful campus one day, and I came to what I guess they would call a barn. But it was unlike any barn you've ever seen. I mean, it was a huge structure of ceramic and, and stainless steel. And in it were stainless steel stalls with cows, black and white milk cows in there. But I mean immaculate. And I was just kind of touring, looking through the air, and I looked at all these cows, and I noticed something very odd. Each of these cows had a big stopper in its side. I mean like a big bathtub stopper just stuck in the side of the cow. And so I asked someone, well, what's this about? And so they told me. Now, I don't know if they still do it this way. This was long ago when I was a young man and dinosaurs roamed the earth and probably things have changed since then. But at least back then what they told me was, said, you see, a cow, a, a cow is a, a, a ruminant animal. That is, it has multiple stomachs and it grazes on grass. But a cow can't digest grass any more than you can. You can't digest grass, and neither can a cow. Grass is cellulose, very complex sugar, and you don't have the chemistry to digest it, to break it down. Neither does a cow. But living in the stomach of that cow, the first stomach, is a bacterium that does have the ability to break down cellulose. And so the cow goes out and grazes on grass for a while, and then he goes out and lies down under a tree, cough that stuff back up. That's just for lunch. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, chews his cud. And what has happened is, that the, the bacterium has broken that complex sugar, cellulose, into a more simple sugar, and now your chemistry can take over, or the cows can, and can digest it. Now, the problem is that every now and then a cow will get a bacterial infection. And the vet will be called, and the vet will find the problem, and say, well, I'm going to have to give a very strong dose of medicine to this cow to kill this bad bacteria. And so he does. The problem is that it kills the good bacteria, too. And so after a while, the cow is perfectly well. But you could take the cow out and put it in the most lush green pasture, and it could graze all day, and it would starve to death because it doesn't have the ability to digest the grass. But the vet knew that was going to happen, and so when he gets word from the farmer that the cow appears to be well, he calls Clemson University. Clemson says the lab technician out there, he puts on a long rubber glove, pulls the stopper out of the side of the cow, reaches in there with a vial and gets a sample of stomach juices, puts the stopper back in, sends the vial to the vet, vet takes it out and gives it to the cow, restarts the culture, and everything's honky-dory. Now, what does that have to do with this sermon? I don't have the foggiest idea. <laughs> Except to say that something like that goes on in the spiritual life, apparently. Because I, 
I've been in many a church where there was good Bible preaching, good Bible Sunday school teaching. There were Christian radio stations to listen to, a Bible on every coffee table in the home. And yet I watched people as they simply dried up, blew away, and died spiritually. They simply, something had gone wrong down inside, and they no longer were able to digest the things of God. Now, young people, if you, if you do not have an appetite for the things of God, I know that how that appetite will manifest itself will vary from your age to middle age to old age. And I understand that, but there ought to be a desire for the things of God, a hungering for, a feeding upon the Word of God, the times of prayer, Christian music, times of fellowship, meditation, the things of God. And if you have no appetite for the things of God, then I don't know of but three possibilities. Either you've never been alive, You've never been a Christian. You've never been born again. Or you are dead. Or you are dying. Then my professor said that anything that was alive had to grow. Now we know that. And again, we just understand that it's part of being alive and well that you grow. Most of you are at the stage of your life where you're still growing. Unfortunately, so am I. Uh, they... <laughs> You know, this is, this is just part of being alive and well. You grow. And again, we would be alarmed if we had a child that didn't grow. In fact, I one time wintered with the circus in Sarasota, Florida. And uh, in that circus, they had a little husband and wife that were midgets. Their trade names in the circus were Buttons and Bows, and they were sideshow freaks. They lived in a little house trailer. I went to visit them, and the little house trailer, you'd go inside, and it was all cut down, little low cabinets, and little almost like doll furniture everywhere, one or two chairs set around for us big galoops, and everything else cut down for them. In fact, he had, he had a special car that he drove. It was just a regular car on the outside, but when he'd drive up, it looked like a regular man sitting in there. And then he'd open the door, and you'd realize the seats were all built up, and the pedals were all built out, and he'd come sliding down out of there, little tiny man. They were, they were sweet and gracious, and I loved them. But none of us would change places with them because we know that there's something wrong when you don't grow. We simply understand that being alive and healthy, you're supposed to grow. Young people, is there growth going on in your life? The Bible talks about that. The Bible talks about when you're first saved that you, you feed on milk and then eventually you're ready for strong meat and you begin to grow. I was flying across the Pacific many years ago, back before the days of jet airliners. It was in a four-engine, piston-driven plane with one of those big three-tailed constellations. Beautiful airplane. But I was crossing the Pacific for Japan, droning through the night. I was asleep with my head against one of the windows, and I was awakened when the passenger next to me screamed. <laughs> and I opened my eyes, and the whole inside of the cabin was flickering red, and that's not a good way to wake up in the middle of the night out over the Pacific. I looked out the window, and one of the engines was on fire. But they have a way of putting that fire out, and they sprayed foam on it and feathered the prop and shut the engine down, and the pilot came on and said, not to worry, this plane would fly on three engines. But we were going to make an unscheduled stop because of the engine problem at Wake Island in the middle of the Pacific. And uh, so we did, and we spent most of the day there while they, they tried to make sure that it was safe for us to proceed as far as Japan. It was not much there, at least back in those days, just a runway and one or two buildings, a radar station and a weather station. 
And most of the passengers stayed in the one building that was air-conditioned, but I was a young fella, and so I got out and I walked up and down those beautiful crushed coral beaches of Wake Island. And all up and down the, the beaches there are, I guess, what you'd call the nest, if that's the right word for it, of the goonie bird, the wandering albatross. Beautiful, beautiful seabird, probably a seven-foot wingspan. Get out there and just gracefully uh, glide along the tops of those waves, seem like by the hour, without hardly ever batting a wing. And then they'll come back in, and then, and then all the grace leaves them. I mean, when they land, they just roll in, get up and kind of look around, shake themselves off, and waddle over to their youngin'. Because, you see, in each of those dimples is a baby goonie bird or a baby albatross. I mean, just one big ball of down, kind of shaped like a bowling pin, sitting there with two big eyes and a bill waiting for Mama because Mama feeds the baby regurgitated fish. And, uh, again, we're getting you all ready for lunch here. And uh, so, you know, to, to do that process, to feed the baby, Mama's got to stand by the baby. And so Mama waddles over to her baby, and suddenly I realize with amazement that the baby is bigger than the mama. Now, I'm not real smart, but I know that won't work. I mean, I just know that the baby can't be bigger than the mama. Now, I found out later that the baby's really not bigger than the mama, that the baby is covered with a thick coat of downy feathers to protect it from the tropical sun, but at least to look at it, it looked like at that stage that the baby was bigger than the mama, and I had this gut feeling, this visceral feeling, that that won't work, that it just can't be. And you know, I get the same shock sometimes when I walk into church. I see people that are bigger when they're first born than they ever are afterwards. When they first got saved, it's kind of, what can I do? Hey, give me something to do. When they first got saved, they want to tell the neighbors and the rest of the family and the schoolmates about Jesus. And then five years go by or ten years go by, and there they sit. And I hope that those kind of people who don't ever bother to say anything for the Lord, don't want to do anything for the Lord, are as disgusting to you as they are to me. It's inexcusable. There's something terribly wrong. Don't let it happen to you. The fact is, young people, that simply part of being alive is that we grow. It doesn't mean that there aren't peaks and valleys in our experience. I don't like preachers that get up and say, if you've ever felt closer to Jesus than you do this moment, you need to come to this altar. I've felt closer to Jesus than I do this moment. But I must tell you that overall, the general tendency of our life is supposed to be one of growth. We're supposed to be more mature in the Lord than we were one year, two years, three years ago. You're supposed to be getting a handle on things. You're supposed to be learning to live like Jesus. You're supposed to be developing in the Lord. And if you are not growing in Christ, then I do not know of but three possibilities. Either you have never been alive, you are dead, or you are dying. Then my professor said that anything that was alive had to give off byproducts of its metabolism. You see, when you tell someone you're a Christian, they have a right to stand back there and watch you and expect to see some kind of an indication that indeed something is going on down inside of you that is not going on down inside of the non-Christian. Simply byproduct, you say you're alive in a way that they are not, you say that you have life in Jesus, then there ought to be byproducts of that spiritual metabolism going on down inside of you. 
I mean, you know, in, in the realm of the physical, we, for example, we as mammals, and we are mammals, and we're certainly not reptiles, we're mammals, okay, I have no problem with that. I mean, God is tabernacled to this spirit in a mammalian body, and so a uh, tent of clay. And what do we do? We breathe in oxygen. Then we have to breathe out carbon dioxide. I mean, there's just a byproduct of our metabolism. Did you ever walk into a room where maybe there would have been a, a sick child or an infirm elderly person, and you walked in, and just for a moment you looked, and they were so pale and so still, and your heart nearly stopped, and oh, could it be, and you run over, and what do you do? Among other things, maybe you feel their hand to see if it's still warm, because we just know that if you're alive, you give off heat. We simply understand that everything that's alive gives off some kind of a byproduct that said that there's something going on down inside. There is a chemistry going on, and I'm convinced that spiritually, you and I who profess to know Jesus, there ought to be some kind of a byproduct that indicates that we are alive in a way that the world is not. I'm not here to tell you what that will be. Some people may shout and run. Some people may cry. Some people may, experience, may express their relationship with Christ in many different ways. But young people, there just has to be something that says you are different. Not for the sake of being different. If you go around looking for ways to be different, you're completely on the wrong wavelength. But just if you spontaneously, because you are a Christian walking with God, living a life that's careful and holy in a wicked world, you are going to, in many ways, be different. And it indicates that there's something going on down inside of you very real. Some byproduct of your metabolism. There's a joy. In fact, it may be what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. There may be a joy, a poise, a dignity, a security, a confidence that emits from you that the world in its fear and trembling of what's coming to pass doesn't have. But something that says that what you're talking about when you profess to be a Christian is real. My daddy is a very special person. My daddy is a very brilliant man, but my daddy is very eccentric. He's his own special person. I mean, he just does things his way, and I love eccentric people. I have to. I am one. <laughs> but he is just special. My daddy, he's unique. My daddy collects tires like the average person collects postage stamps. I mean, he's got garages full of tires. Uh, I remember I went, I went down one time to visit after I was married and went in and kissed my mom on the cheeks and where's daddy? She said he's in the bathtub with a tire. I went in, I went into the bathroom and there he sat in the bathtub about half filled up, big tire between his legs he was scrubbing and I mean a beautiful big tire mounted on a wheel, big chrome spinner hubcap mounted on it. I mean, it, this was an expensive, where it was a white wall normally, it had checkerboards, it was, I said, what you doing daddy? He said, I'm washing his tire. I said, that's a nice one. Where'd you get it? He said, well, I bought so many tires from Cheek and Presley recapping till I won a contest. And they told me I could have any tire in the store, so I got this one. I said, what are you going to put it on? He said, oh, I don't have anything that'll fit. He said, it won't fit anything. He said, it just was the best tire they had, so I got it. I mean, I don't know whether he's going to hang it on the wall or what. When I was courting my wife, uh, the woman who would become my wife, I used to have a little tiny, uh, tiny little car, an Austin Healey 1000. It's a nice car to court in. Your girl had to sit close to you. There wasn't anywhere else to sit. I mean, I mean, you know, you almost needed training wheels on it so you got the hang of keeping it upright in the road. I'd go out there to see her. Well, 
But, you know, in my we had rules, and we were both Christians, and our parents were quite strict with us. And so when we dated, I could, we'd go to her house, my house, her church, my, my church, and the Dairy Queen. That was about it. And uh, we spent a lot of time at Dairy Queen. But... Uh, <laughs> uh, but I would go and get her, and I'd bring her back to the house, and we'd sit in the parlor, you know, and we'd, we'd talk to each other. And I'd stay just as late as I, I dared keep her and still get her home out about 15 miles out in the country to uh, under her father's curfew. And so now we just barely have time to get home on time. We'd run out, jump in the car, and I'd discover that my car was jacked up and all the tires were off of it. And I'd run around to the backyard, and there's my daddy. My daddy'd rather change tires and eat when he's hungry. And he's just back there changing tires. I said, Daddy, where are my tires? i got to get this girl. Whoa, whoa, okay, okay. He'd roll tires around. He's got all kinds of tires. Sometimes he'd put big ones in the back and little ones in the front, and I'd drive down the road like this. Or maybe he'd get the big ones in the front, and I'd go down the road like this, or on one side. Or, or even get them cattywampus, and then you just kind of... In fact, when we, when we left California to move to South Carolina, we, we had a car with four tires. We had a trailer with four tires, and they hadn't invented the load leveler hitch yet, so we had what they called a dolly, another little set of two tires between the car and the trailer. So we had a number of tires on the road, but my daddy had hundreds and hundreds of tires. So he lifted me up on the roof, I was just a boy, and he started handing up his tires. He handed up the best ones first, up on the roof of the house trailer. I mean, the very, and he had good tires. He put the very best of them on the bottom of the stack. Now, this trailer was 30-something feet long, and yet we had tires, the full width of the trailer, the full length of the trailer, and several deep stacked up there. The worst ones on the bottom, he worked his way up, I mean, the best ones on the bottom, the very worst of them were on the ground, on the car and the trailers. I mean, ball-headed, onion-skinned tires. He put those on the car and on the trailer. You could see the air in them. I mean, these were, these were ball-headed tires. And then he wired all these tires up here on the roof, and we started from California to South Carolina. We hadn't gone 20 miles. We had a flat. We had tires that could have made the trip, but no, no. So we'd stop. I mean, we'd get out, and he'd put me up on the roof, and I'd unwire the next worst tire that we had, throw it down. He'd change the tire. And I don't mean change the wheel, people. I mean change the tire. Drive the car up on the old tire and pinch it off. And, and I mean a job. Had a thing you screwed into the spark plug that would pump the tire back up, you know. And he'd put that on. He'd throw the old carcass out there. He'd say, well, I got all the good out of that. And we'd drive another 20 miles. And you could follow our trail from California to South Carolina by the tire carcasses along the road. He's just his own special fella. I'll tell you some other time. He collects batteries like he collects tires. But I, I remember one time, my daddy, we were living out west. We had... We had an interesting car. It was a coupe back in the days when a coupe meant that it had two doors, one seat, and an ironing board in the back. Now, what I mean by that is that you just had two doors and one seat and then a long panel that ran from the back of the seat back to the window. Well, my daddy took that out so we boys could ride back there. We rode in the trunk and walked around behind the seat. My mother's door was tied on with a rope, but they had a knife stuck in the door panel. It was a real good system. We had a wreck. You could just cut the rope. The door would fall off. You could hop right out. It was a, a really good thing. Now, this car had a problem. I don't know exactly what it was, but if you stopped going up a hill, it just rolled back down the hill. I mean, there wasn't anything you could do about it. It just slowly rolled back down the hill. Well, I come from my mother's side of the family. My daddy is tall and long and lanky, 
And so he solved that. He had some wooden wedges that he kept down by his feet. And if we were going up a hill and the car began to sputter and stall, he'd just reach, open the door, reach out, put that wedge up under the wheel. The tire would roll back till it stopped at the wedge, and we'd wait there till the light changed or whatever the problem was. And then we'd pull off again. He'd just scoop it up as we went by. Now, this car had a problem. It would vapor lock. And some of you fellas know what that is, maybe some of you gals. But, uh, you know, a car has a, a fuel pump, and a fuel pump's supposed to pump a liquid, gasoline. But if gasoline gets hot enough, it will turn into a vapor and a gas, and the pump won't pump it, and the engine will die. Now, this usually happens when the engine heats up, and this happens when you're going up a hill. And a car, this is bad news for cars that roll back downhills, okay? And so this car would vapor lock. Well, my daddy taught me everything I know about mechanics. What do you do, Brother Barr, when you have a car that vapor locks? How do you fix it? Well, you roll the driver's window up. You roll the driver's window up. Yep, that's what you do. Work with my daddy every time. You just roll the driver's window up, and that solves the problem. Because what daddy had done, he took a little gas can, he braised a spigot in the bottom of it, he took some clothes hangers and made a bracket and hung it over his window. And he had a hose that ran out of it and ran into the carburetor. And if we'd be going along, going up a hill, car heat up a little bit, start to sputter, he'd just roll the window up. When he did, that put the gas can way up here, and it would just gravity feed into the carburetor till you got over the hill, and the car could begin to cool down, and then you'd sort of ease the window down, see if it would keep running. Well, uh, this was quite an automobile. We were, we were living out west. One day, we got a phone call that his sister had passed away in Pennsylvania, and we were going to have to make an emergency trip to Pennsylvania. So what do you do before you make a trip? He's checking out this limousine to make sure that it's up to the trip. And he discovered something terrible. He discovered that there was water in the oil. Now, again, some of you know what that means. That's real bad news. I mean, you see, water and oil doesn't mix. All that happens is the oil clabbers, and clabbered oil won't lubricate the engine, and the engine will freeze up, and that's all she wrote. And it means that somewhere in there there's a, there's a crack in the block or a blown head gasket, and it's, if it's fixable at all, it's expensive and time-consuming, and we had neither money nor time. So my daddy pulled something off that I've not heard of anybody else doing. Maybe they do, but it was new to me. And I remind you young bucks in here, don't try this on one of these modern high-compression, high-temperature engines. You'll get an explosion. But this was the old flathead, low-temperature days, and here's what he did. He drained all the water out of the cooling system. He drained all of that old clabbered oil out of the, out of the engine. He took off the oil pan, and he cleaned all that old lumpy oil off the crank and out of the oil pan, put the oil pan back, and then he went somewhere, I think to a trucking firm, and he got some oil. And you know, normally we run something like 10W30 or something in a car. He went and got some stuff. It must have been hundredweight. I mean, it looked like molasses. You put it in with a spoon, uh, coffee grinds or something. It was, it was real thick oil, real heavy oil. And he put that in the engine. And he didn't fill it up. He put just enough in the oil pan that the sump could catch it and pump it through the engine. And then into the cooling system, he put not water, but kerosene. Now, he hasn't fixed the leak. The coolant still leaks into the lubricant. But now it's not water and oil mixing. It's kerosene and oil mixing. And while water and oil won't mix, kerosene and oil will. All that happens is that the oil gets thinner. But when you start with molasses, that's no big deal. So we got into a car and we headed, we headed for Pennsylvania. Well, you know what you're doing when you make a trip. Every now and then you stop at a truck stop or someplace and you check your oil. Why? To see if it's getting too low. Not us. 
while everybody else is checking to see if theirs is getting too low because their oil's going down on the stick, ours is coming up. And so we would stop at a car, uh, a truck stop maybe, and, and Daddy'd check, and sure enough, we got too much oil. I mean, it's coming up. And so my Daddy would look around with this strange sense of humor he's got and grin, and he'd say, "Any of you guys need oil? This this car manufactures oil, buddy. I got oil to give away. Need a quart? Got oil? This car makes oil." And I am convinced, young people, that in a day when all around you, your peers, young people who aren't having the advantage that many of you have in a Christian education, many who do not know Christ and do not have Him working, they are, they are terrified. They are frightened. They are drying up. They, they are panicky in many cases. They're trying to find some kind of pleasure in life that, that is just momentary. You need to have something to share with them. Something that indicates that there's a miracle going on down inside of you, that you have life in you, in Christ, that they do not know about. Hey, you want to know what real life's all about, buddy? Hey, you want to know what real living is? You want to know the real joy? You want to know peace in a peaceless world? Or you are dying. My professor said that anything that was alive had to respond to stimuli. Everything in some way responds to its environment. Whether it's a plant that opens its leaves out and turns its face to the sun and begins to manufacture protein and sugars. Or whether it's a, a uh, again, whether it's a, a uh, uh, some plants, I'm thinking of a little old uh, planarian worm that we used to study, a little flat worm, that in some mystical way that we don't understand can respond even to atomic radiation. You can do experiments to demonstrate that it detects atomic radiation, that we, we have no idea how it does it. We would not detect it until we'd been burnt. Some creatures respond to dark and light, some to hot and cold, some to, to acids and bases, and some to salts. And, but everything that's alive has to respond in some way. Now, young people, part of being alive is that there needs to be a response down in your heart to another world. I know this sounds a little mystical. Uh, I don't want to make it more nor less than it really is. But people, again, being a Christian is not just some kind of an academic exercise. Being a Christian is a miracle. Being a Christian is to be in contact with another world. And it means that at least at times you know in a way you could never describe, but you know that you've talked to God. You know that you've heard from heaven. You know that God has encouraged your heart, has answered your prayer, has renewed your strength. In some way or another, you know that a miracle has happened. You've been in contact with another world. Is there a response to another world? Do you at times sense that deep inner, yes, it's emotion, but it's more than emotion, not less that says that I indeed am in contact with God. I'm responding to another world. Do you? Do you? Now, I'm not talking here about some kind of, of mysticism, and I'm not talking about something bizarre or mysterious in the sense that it's strange. In fact, if you'll keep coming during this week, we're going to deal with some of these very issues that sometimes counterfeit what I am talking about. But I am saying that there are times when I know, sometimes in the place of prayer, sometimes riding down the road in meditation, sometimes in reading the Bible, sometimes in the wee hours, but there are times 
when I know that I'm responding to another world and not to this one. And if you never have anything in you that says reality, reality, this is reality, it's real, it's working, I've heard from heaven, God hears me, I hear God, I know God, He knows me. If you never have that experience, then I would warn you in kindness that I don't know of any other possibility but that either you've never been alive, you are dead, or you are dying. And then lastly, my professor said that anything that was alive had to reproduce. That is, every species on earth is only one generation away from extinction. Do you understand that when you profess to be a Christian, God expects you to be fruitful? You are to influence others for Christ. We leave it up to the preacher. It's really not the preacher's job. It's not the shepherd that brings forth the sheep. It's the sheep. I go into a barber shop. I have one barber shop that I've got my hair cut there for since I got married whenever I'm in the area. And uh, I can walk in, and they know me, of course. And when I come in, I guess they forget that there are mirrors on all the walls. But when I sit down in the chair, I'll see the, I'll see the barber behind me, and he's waving at all the other guys in there. And what he means is, you know, no cussing, no dirty jokes. We've got a preacher in the chair. And so I can sit in that chair and I can talk about God's beautiful day and, and, or anything else. It doesn't make any impression on those guys. I'm supposed to talk that way. I'm a preacher. But let me tell you, when the school chum that sits in the desk next to you starts talking about Jesus, when the person who works across the aisle from you starts talking about Jesus, when the neighbor, when, the, when your friend starts telling how good it is to be a Christian, how wonderful Jesus is, that makes an impression that preachers can never make. And young people, it's not some big highfalutin thing. It's not some complex thing. It's a matter of just sharing that you love Jesus, that he's made a difference in your life. And it makes you fruitful. I know that probably most people do get saved in a church service or an evangelistic service, but most people will tell you that they came to that service in the first place because of the influence of a godly friend or co-worker or parent or someone who brought them to that point. Are we fruitful? It is no small thing to never bear any fruit, young people. It is serious that we never influence anyone to want our Lord. It's very serious. The prophet Isaiah was actually a songwriter and a singer as well as a prophet. And in Isaiah chapter 5, he sings this song. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath the vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes. And it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What more could have been done in my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. Go to now, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. And God pronounces curses and woes upon a vineyard that he made every preparation for it to be fruitful and it didn't bring forth any fruit. And young people, God expects us to be fruitful and he's made every provision for us to be. Do you, for example, he's fenced us. You see, the vineyard is the saint. It's the church, yes, but the church where the dwelling place of God is in his people. 
you individually. And he's protected us. He's fenced us. We're protected in ways we don't ever hardly realize. Only once in a while do we have a close call and we realize that God was near and protected us. And maybe we bow our heads and thank him. We certainly should. But how many other times has he turned away the drunk or turned away the diseased organism? And we never even knew it. We're protected. I'll tell you, I walk through this life with tremendous confidence in Jesus. I'm a protected person. He said he planted it with the choicest vine. You remember Jesus said, I am the vine. In other words, when you profess to be a Christian, Jesus is planted down in your heart and begins to grow and to live. He said he removes the stones out of it. I believe that that's holiness. That's sanctification where God will take out the old resistant, stubborn spirit if we'll let him. And he said he put a wine press therein. Some of you have been hurting. Some of you have been through hard times. Some of you have known pain, both physical and emotional. You've known grief. Some of you have known tremendous loss, and you'll know more before life is through. In all probability, it's a mean world. Why does God allow those things to come our way? You know, I told you, I believe yesterday, that I shared with a classroom full of handicapped kids and was able to communicate with them because I understood them and they knew that I felt and understood and cared Young people, when you've, where you've had a hard time, where you've been disappointed and hurt and grieved, instead of becoming bitter and cantankerous and one of these old sour people, turn around and make lemonade out of the lemons that the devil gave you. Turn it around for good, and you'll find that there are hurting people out there that God has allowed you to suffer pain and hurt and disappointment and loss so that you can minister to them. It can make you fruitful. Why did God do all of that? So we could be fruitful. Young people, it's important that you be fruitful. Now, what do you then do if you're alive? Anything that's alive has to be born. Do you know you've been born again? Anything that's alive has to feed. Do you have an appetite for the things of God? Anything that's alive has to grow. Do you see that there's progress in your spiritual life on the long term? Anything that's alive has to give off byproducts of its metabolism. Is there something that you have to share with others that says that you indeed are a Christian in reality? Anything that's alive has to respond to stimuli. Do you once in a while in prayer or music or something hear from another world? Anything that's alive has to reproduce. Is there something in you that wants to bring others to know Jesus? If these things are not happening then I do not know of any other way to diagnose your case but to say that you either have never been alive, you are dead, or you are dying. I have a friend. Her name is Becky. Becky's almost like my sister rather than a friend. I lived in her home. Her father was my pastor, and I lived with them for a couple of years while my parents were overseas. And so Becky is a very close friend. And Becky is now head of nursing in a large hospital, but at one time when she was doing her student nursing, she told me of this story, and I'll close with it. She said that uh, she was on duty in the evening, uh, second shift, I believe, in the emergency room. The doors opened, and in came a man and his wife, the wife pale and leaning heavily upon her husband. They came in and sat down. Becky went over and asked him what the problem was, and the woman said, I feel so sick. The man said, my wife has just felt so badly all day until I felt like we'd better come in to the emergency room. And uh, so Becky got the necessary information, paged a course for the doctor that was on call, and then she began to take the vital signs and fill out the form that the doctor would want when he arrived. She took the lady's temperature, and then she began to look for her pulse, and she couldn't find her pulse. 
And she began to panic. She knew that just any moment the doctor would come in and he was going to chew her out if she didn't have that bit of information. But she couldn't find the pulse. She tried all of the techniques they'd taught her in school. And sure enough, exactly what she feared happened. In came the doctor, picked up the chart, instantly noticed that that piece of information was missing, said, Nurse, what is this woman's pulse rate? And very much embarrassed, Becky said, I'm sorry, doctor, but I couldn't find it. Couldn't find it, couldn't find it. What are they teaching these girls in school nowadays? Send you off for a simple thing like a pulse rate and you don't even know how to take it. And he came over and he began to look for the woman's pulse and he couldn't find it either. The woman sitting there saying, I feel so sick. And as he was endeavoring to find her pulse, all at once she moaned softly, fell over sideways and was dead. He did some further examining and found what her problem had been came later to Becky to apologize, said, Nurse, I'm sorry I came down on you so hard. Now that I know what the woman's condition was, it was not possible for you to have found her pulse rate. He said, for all practical purposes, she was as good as dead when she walked in the door. Now, don't go out of here and tell your parents or your teachers, Mr. Barr told us about a woman that walked in the hospital dead. That isn't what I said, okay? But I am telling you that it is apparently possible to be going through the functions and to be as good as dead. And I know that it is possible in the realm of the Spirit. For our Lord said, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. One of these days, young people, we will all stand before God. It could be soon. When that time comes, you'll want to know that you've been alive in Jesus Christ. Long before that time, you and I will face all kinds of crises and we'll need to know that we are truly alive in Jesus Christ. And I'm asking you, along with me, that this week you will examine yourself. And if you find out that there's something missing, let me tell you the solution. If you come to the conclusion, you know, I don't know that I've ever been a Christian. I've just gone through I kind of grew up in it, you know. But I don't really know when I ever really had a miraculous transformation and was born again and became a new creature. I don't know that I've ever been alive. Well, I want you to know the solution is Jesus Christ. You may say, well, you know, I know that there was a time I was a Christian, but I confess I've backslidden. And today, I'm just, I analyze my condition. These things aren't happening in me. I'm, I'm spiritually dead. I've died. Well, I want you to know the solution is Jesus Christ. He's the resurrection and the life. You may say, Brother Barr, uh, I know I'm a Christian, and I don't believe I'm backslidden, but I confess in some of these areas I have a problem. Uh, I I am not growing like I should. I don't have an appetite for the things of God. I don't have much to share in spirit with a hungry world. Whatever the problem is, you'd say, I I don't believe I'm backslidden, but I confess I'm not in real good spiritual health. Well, I want you to know the solution is Jesus. And if you'll go to him and say, oh God, here's my problem, he is the solution. He's the great physician of the soul. And you can make this the week when you not only, if you haven't been, are born again, but you can make this the week when you get on top spiritually in good spiritual health. Come with your cup turned up, not only to these services, but get into the other services and let God help us this week. Thank you for your good attention. God bless. You're dismissed. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com.
This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I don't want to live.